sermon text this morning is from Exodus chapter 1. Let's read that together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, how many of you have ever said... Can I talk to your manager? So whether you're trying to convince uh, the person on the other end of the phone line that the price is actually $10 less than what they're telling you, or you're talking to your waiter about how your spaghetti is too soupy at a local restaurant, if you're having a hard time convincing, there's always that trump card you can play. Can I talk to your manager, please? Because it's the manager who can actually do something about the situation, right? He's the one in charge. He's the one who gets to call the shots. What about when something goes wrong in life? What about the times when things don't go the way you've planned them to go? Who can you call? Not the Ghostbusters. <laughs> Who's the manager? Who's the one in control? Well, last week we began a study in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus is a second book of the Bible, uh, written, many believe, by the prophet Moses. It concerns events in Egypt, about the 1400s BC. And this week we dive right into chapter one, which Stan has just read for us. And here we see God's people, the sons of Israel, in captivity to the nation of Egypt. But as we dig in a bit deeper, as we kind of pull back the curtain this morning, we'll see clearly who's in charge of this entire situation. Who's the manager of it all? 
and that is God himself. He is sovereign. He is in control. So with our time together this morning, let's see God's sovereignty in three different ways in this chapter. First, let's see his sovereignty in Israel's abundance. Israel's abundance. Second, let's see his sovereignty in Egypt's oppression. Egypt's oppression. And then finally, let's see his sovereignty in Pharaoh's command. Pharaoh's command. So first, Israel's abundance. And we see this in verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 7, I'm sorry. So Exodus begins by connecting backwards to the book of Genesis. So Genesis had ended with Joseph saving his brothers and his father's entire household from famine and starvation. And as part of that rescue, Joseph's father, Jacob, or Israel, same guy, had come up from his land to settle down in Egypt. That's where they would all be cared for. That's where they would have enough to eat. And we see there in verse 2 that all Joseph's 11 brothers came up to Egypt. In verse 5, he was already there, but he was joined by his father's household, which seems at least 70 people. So looking back at, at Genesis chapter 46, for instance, we see that on the way up to Egypt, God had appeared to Jacob and spoken to him, to Israel. And he had said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. See, this was a new stage in the history of Israel. But God tells Jacob on the way into Israel or into Egypt, do not fear. Why? Well, God continues, for there, I will make you into a great nation. God would increase his people, Israel, in Egypt. And this was no new promise to Jacob's family. So back in Genesis 15, God had appeared to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and had brought him out into the night under the stars and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. See, God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and and 17 and so on that he would bless his descendants, this people of Israel, that he would make of them a great multitude of people, not only for their good, but for the good of the entire world. And so here, even as Israel, as God's people are uprooted and moved to Egypt, God assured Jacob that his promise would be fulfilled. So what happened? Verse 6. We see Joseph dies, all his brothers die, and then every one of those 70 plus people died. But then verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. See, even in a strange land, God is fulfilling his promises to his people. And if you listen to those verses or those words of verse 7, do they ring a bell for you? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Sounds like God's first command to the first man in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? To Adam. See, listen, God's plan for mankind, for those made in his image, was always that they would flourish, that they would fill the earth, that they would, the world would just abound with them in their number and in their strength. He planned this for his own glory. Because remember, these, these mankind was made in God's image. And so as God's image was, was propounded through the world, his glory would be propounded throughout the world. Get it? That was God's design. But in Genesis, we see this plan of God just threatened and opposed over and over. A, a tower is built in Babel 
for the, for the precise reason of not spreading abroad, but centralizing power against God. Uh, Abraham waits forever to have a kid so God can, you know, fulfill his promise to him. And then God tells him to sacrifice his kid. What's going on? Even in those darkest of times when God's plan seems the most precarious, it's always carried out. And in his covenant with Abraham, we see God take that creation mandate to all mankind, be fruitful and multiply, and he promises to carry that out through Israel, through his own special people. The Israelites will flourish. The Israelites will multiply, and eventually the world will be blessed through them. And so here in verses one through seven, what seems like a somewhat boring prologue to the book of Exodus is actually an incredible showcase of the sovereign power of God over history, over creation, over his people. He would get glory to himself. End of sentence. He would fulfill his promises. I mean, just look, at, look there at verse seven again. Look at the repetitive nature. You hardly ever see this in the Bible. Just this many things heaped up on themselves. So not only did the Israelites become fruitful, but they increased greatly. Great, that's good to know. But not only did they multiply then, but they grew exceedingly strong. Okay, author of Exodus, Moses, we get the point. No, the land was filled with them. Could there be any doubt God was at work and he was keeping his promise? The psalmist didn't have any doubt about it in Psalm 105. When he said, then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful. And he made them stronger than their foes. This was all God's doing. God is sovereign, church. I mean, 70 had become a multitude. And God's plan to bring salvation and blessing to the world through his people was being carried out. But the good times were soon to be over, right? Look there in verses 8 through 14. Because here we see God's sovereignty in Egypt's oppression. Egypt's oppression. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So back in the day when Joseph was ruling and Jacob first arrived with his people, the king of Egypt had been so welcoming and warm. But we see now in verse 6 that that generation had completely died off. Years had passed. Another pharaoh is in power, and he's different. He sees the Israelites as a threat, a threat to the sovereignty of Egypt, a threat to the security of Egyptians. And so he decides not to just kind of stew and fret about this problem, but actually do something about it. And that's verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Here, Pharaoh has a plan. Here's a tactical strategy for how to diminish the power and the number of these immigrant Israelites. Let's use them for forced labor. Let's hire foremen to run these labor uh, teams as Israelites, as Israelites work hard on these terrible conditions. That's what happens. And the Israelites are used to build up Egypt's infrastructure and, and, and security. There in verse 11, the Israelites build these store cities, Python and Ramses. These are cities that are probably filled with supplies for Egypt. 
They're, they're kind of a defense against anybody that would come against them. And so not only are these Israelites being persecuted, but they're actively being used to build up the strength of their enemy. It's like a, a lose-lose situation for God's people. Nothing's going right. What about God's promise? I mean, what about his sovereign control over this situation? Make matters worse. Verse 13, we see Egypt makes the Israelites work as slaves and make their lives bitter with hard service. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So just listen to kind of like the description of the Israelites' life right now. It's bitter, it's hard, and it's ruthless. Egypt is bringing all its weight and power to bear to squash the people of God, to keep them from multiplying, from growing in strength, from threatening the control of Pharaoh. But church, in the midst of all this, look at verse 12. I love this verse. This verse gives us such a glimpse of the God we serve. This is so like God. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. I mean, if, if we were reading this for the first time, and some of us might be reading this for the first time, this should be the exact opposite of what we should expect. I mean, just think about it. Slave people ruthlessly handled by an oppressing dictator and growing like nobody's business. And in fact, the more the oppression heightened, the more their number increases. The more Pharaoh attempts to oppose God's plan, the more his plan is fulfilled. Pharaoh's strategy for containment is failing miserably because Pharaoh's plan isn't sovereign. God's is. Right, look there in verse 10. It cannot get any clearer than this, folks. Pharaoh tells his people, we need a plan. What? Lest they multiply. And then look at verse 12. They multiplied. Right, you can't beat God. Even if you're the greatest monarch in the world. If you try, you will fail. And so in verse 12, we see the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. In church, God has not changed. He is the same God today that he was 3,500 years ago on the plains of Egypt. God works even in the darkest of times to bless his people and bring salvation to the earth. See, God's plan to bless the world through his people was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came in the line of Abraham, the line of Jacob, the line of Israel, the very son of God made flesh. Why? To die. Jesus came to give up his perfect life in the place of every sinner who would trust in him. And in Jesus, we see all those prom covenant promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses fulfilled. As John Vinci read for us earlier, even in that darkest moment in history, the moment the Son of God is slain on the cross, even then God is sovereign. Remember that? The Apostle Paul in Acts 2, preaching this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. God was in control even in the crucifixion of his son to bring blessing and salvation to the world. And in the same way, he's sovereign right here in Israel's captivity to Egypt. When all seems lost, he's working a way to bring about his plan and his promise to Abraham. If you're here and you're not a Christian, friend, that, 
Just understand that the Bible teaches God has actually planned ever since the beginning of creation, before the beginning of creation, to save sinners through the cross. And this morning, that could be you. If you confess your sin and how that sin deserves God's just wrath, and if you believe in Christ as the one who took that wrath for you, you will be saved. Trust in him. And church, even in oppression and suffering, God is at work. He is not surprised by threats to his people or to his power. I mean, if you look back at Genesis 15 later, you'll see God, just clear language, tells Abraham straight up, your people are going to be enslaved. And I'm going to bring them up again. He doesn't even just like tell Abraham the good news. And Abraham's kind of taken aback by these persecutions. God knew all, of, he knew Exodus 1 was going to happen. He told his people they were, it was going to happen. He ordained it to happen for the good of his people and the glory of his name. He's completely sovereign, not only to rescue his people out of Egypt, but to help them endure in Egypt and even flourish as they're suffering. Christian, are you suffering this morning? Are you oppressed by trials or temptations? Look at the character of this God, of your God. As Alec Motier, I'm going to be quoting Alec Motier a lot because he's, his commentary on this is amazing. Here's how he puts it. We see God working out his own schemes in his own way, on his own scale, to his own time plan, and according to his own wisdom. And we find the assurance that although the days were dark, it was all right, it was all planned, and it will all be well. So if you're in Christ, Christian, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus this morning, you've been given that new life, even in your darkest hours, it will be all right, it has all been planned, and it will all be well. I'm not trying to give you, we talked about this in our small group this past week, I'm not trying to give you the, the world's kind of empty consolation of this too shall pass. Because we all know something worse is coming. How much of a consolation is that? No, the hope of the Christian is infinitely more substantial. We know that even in the midst of our suffering, God is sovereign. God is at work. So Christian, if you're in despair this morning, if you're doubting God, if you're wondering what, how to make sense of what he's done, be reminded that he is not only all loving, but he's always sovereign. He's always in control. I mean, think about it. If he were always loving, but just sometimes in control, we just have to chalk up all our sufferings to him just not having the power to do good or maybe being asleep on the job. But on the other hand, if he was always in control, but only sometimes loving, we'd have to just distrust everything he sent our way and speculate as to God's ulterior motives. How fun would that be? Christian, God is always loving and he's always in control. You can trust him. You can say along with the psalmist in Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
God's sovereignty is all over this chapter. It's clear here, both in Israel's abundance and Egypt's oppression. And finally, God's sovereignty is clear in Pharaoh's command. It's our last point. Pharaoh's command. So Pharaoh's plan to kind of squash Israel through forced labor doesn't pan out too well. So what's he do? Is he just kind of throw in the towel? No, he resorts to an even more evil idea in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstone, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh is so desperate that he's resorting to infanticide. All Israelite boys must be viewed as potential threats and must be exterminated. Here we see Pharaoh as the ultimate enemy of God. And God had commanded life to multiply and be fruitful at creation and again in his covenant with Abraham. But here, this so-called sovereign of Egypt commands that death rule the day. That the life of God's people not multiply, but be snuffed out. So what do the midwives do? Pharaoh had all the power to make sure he com- what he commanded was carried out. They dare not refuse him. But would they dare to kill those boys? Would they dare to oppose God? And, and church, I can't bypass this without reminding us that God's the author of life. He's the only one who can give it, and he's the only one who can rightfully take it away. And so you cannot consistently follow this kind of life-giving God and still lend your support to the practice of abortion. Abortion, this kind of ending of life in the womb, is an act of rebellion against God. It is not, first and foremost, an act of cruelty, though of course it is. It's not, first and foremost, an act of independence on behalf of the mother. No, it is always a fist raised in the face of God. An act of denial of his authority and his plan and his love and his life-giving power. And so, Let's let this passage remind us of that today. Let's not be passive in conversation about abortion in our society. Let's be vocal in the defense of life because it's God who's given it. Well, having said that, what do the midwives do? These pro-life midwives. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I mean, this was a clear decision they had to make, right? They would either have to obey Pharaoh's evil decree or disobey and risk death even themselves. It all depended on who they feared most. And we see they choose to fear the most fear-worthy one. They choose to fear not the sovereign of Egypt, but the sovereign of the universe. And see, courage for them did not mean lack of fear. That's how we often think of courage, isn't it? Courage is fearlessness. But church, no. 
These midwives had a lot of fear in their hearts. True courage is not lack of fear. It's the fear of the right thing, right? It's not fearlessness, but accurately aimed fear. The midwives feared, but they feared God way more than they feared Pharaoh. So what about you? Christian, what do you fear most of all? What's most, or who is most fear-worthy in your life? Is it, is it the opinion of those from whom you need affirmation? Your, your parents, your wife, your kids, your husband? Is it the threat of maybe somebody discovering those secret sin habits and patterns in your life? Is it the prospect of your kids growing up to be moral failures? Drifting away from the faith? Is it your health? Is it the precarious nature of your financial stability? So whatever you fear most will control you most. It will eat away at you. It will pull you in every which way. But if your ultimate fear is not something you want to control, but the one who controls you, if your ultimate fear is that healthy, reverential, awe-filled fear of this creator of the universe who's sovereign, well, then you will find rest. You will find courage. You will find purpose and meaning. Christian, who will you fear? It's interesting. Chapter one ends with the midwives being spared by Pharaoh. It looks like they're lying. I'm not sure if they're lying. They're definitely shrewd. God blesses them, okay? So we can be confident of that. Pharaoh just goes ballistic. So he's like, okay, midwives ain't doing it. Hey, all of you Egyptians, you're now doing this. Join in on killing these Israelite children. But as we close out that first chapter, just notice one thing, church. Throughout these verses, do we ever hear Pharaoh's name? I mean, he's, he's just the Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh is just a title for the king of Egypt. And we never learn which Pharaoh this actually is, and the Pharaohs love their names. They erected great tombs so that their names would be remembered. We don't even know who this Pharaoh was. What are the two names we do see? It's the names of those two women, isn't it? It's Shifra and Pua. Do you see here God's sovereignty over the command of Pharaoh? Pharaoh thought he could overpower God's people. He thought he was the one to level that final decree that would be obeyed. But as it turns out, we don't even have record of his name. No, it was the lowly midwives who boldly stood up and refused his command because another sovereign king was more powerful. It's those women we remember. That's how insignificant Pharaoh's power was in the face of God's plan. And so verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. And we're right back where we started. God's plan being accomplished. Pharaoh tried his best. He'll continue to try his best through the next few chapters. But as we'll see, God's always going to come out the victor. So Christian, where is your confidence in suffering? Who will you fear 
Who will you trust? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the lesson of Exodus 1. Thank you that you're not surprised or overwhelmed or taken aback by the opposition of man. And we praise you that your plan will always be carried out. And so we pray for those in our midst who are struggling to believe, who are doubting, who are despairing. Would you turn their eyes upward and remind them of your sovereign care and love? And we pray for those in our midst who are struggling to fear you above others. Lord, would you make people small in their eyes and remind them of your infinite bigness? Lord, be with us now as we sing of your mighty splendor and sovereignty, even in the death of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.